and welcome to another episode of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. This week, we have the second part of my conversation with John Rayham, and we begin with his version of how he approaches hybrid recording. That's hybrid recording, not hybrid mixing, hybrid recording. So recording to tape via, uh, well, via tape to the computer in real time. So he's getting the tape saturation and he's getting the backup on the computer in real time. Uh, It's very cool. Very, very cool. So we're just going to dive straight in with that. Here we go. John Rayham, part two. about how does your hybrid setup work um i mean i'm kind of thinking uh like technically how are you how are you moving from tape to the computer at the same time yeah okay yeah so that's pretty cool question because it's like i think i'm the only person in the world doing it the way i'm doing it okay (laughs) Uh, and i think it's the best way in the world because unlike okay so i've got a two inch 16 track ampex mm 1200 which is kind of the sonic holy grail of large format of of tape formats like two inch 16 track and that thing is all discreet there's no chips in it it's just a beautiful machine except for the transport like it's you know, people used to say MM must stand for master muncher because it like it's like notorious for being sluggish, super hard to punch in on. There's no auto locate. There's no nothing. Right? It's very primitive transport. I mean, it is servo controlled, but it's fairly primitive. And then I also have a Scully half inch four track, which is what they had at stacks. So you know, that's it's just got that splat so i've got flavors that i want to capture but the feasibility of working off tape is too expensive very limiting there's no you know nobody's good enough anymore to just just stay on tape like there's edits have to be made or or nobody would make records this is, like, is a genuinely a common theme i'm I, you know talking yeah. to the the sort of people I, I i'm speak to for this podcast that seems to be a something that's coming up a lot yeah yeah so i don't know if it's just because everyone knows that there is such a thing as editing and pitch correction and nudging stuff here and there that the talent level has decreased <laughs> or whether our standards are just so much higher and i don't mean better i just mean we're more meticulous about those kinds of things. Yeah, like tolerance for or better or worse. I, yeah. yeah, just not really sure. You know, like I don't go too far a lot of the time, uh, and even sometimes I wonder if I've gone too far. But you know, there's a lot of people that go a lot further than we go. Anyway, so yeah, like the signal flow here at the studio is such that I can monitor off of the repro head off of tape. So I'm like, unlike a clasp system or something like that, which is great for integrating tape machines with computers, except for the fact that while the tape is happening, you are listening to the pre-tape version of these signals. Yes. what, What I'm using tape for is to get some saturation and know just those fine lines of how hard I'm hitting it. So class to me is useless because I'm not hearing it until I play it back. And, but then it's too late. So I've got a system that I've built that I just called time machine. And it's made up of a few sort of generic delays and false latency reporters to the host such that I send out the click track or Q mix or tracks that people are going to be playing to to the artist 186 milliseconds ahead of time so that by the time they hear it play it it comes up through the microphones to the mic preamps to the tape machine gets recorded to tape and then played back immediately off of the repro head which is at 15 ips 
186 milliseconds on an MPEX and then 1200, it all lines up, sample accurate, back in the computer. So there's no nudging. There's no, at the end of every take, you got to move it back or forward. And that way I can also accommodate doing live punch-ins through the tape machine still. So basically I rewind the tape, let it roll for 30 minutes at 15 nips and just drive Pro Tools like I'm not using tape, except everything is going through the tape machine. And then at the end of 30 minutes, I've got my tape counter up on a separate little monitor here. Just stop, rewind, back to the beginning. So the transport limitations aren't really an issue because you're, all you're doing is going 30 minutes and rewinding. It's really easy on the tape. Like tape stock is hard to find and expensive. And yeah. the thing that really is tough on tape and creates dropouts and stuff is all that kind of stop, start, punch, rewind, stop, start. Mm -hmm. And this way I'm just rewind to zero, let it roll for 30 minutes. Um, and you'd think that would be, oh, well, yeah, isn't that what everyone would do? But you, <laughs> it's, a, it's a real technological mind bender to get it so that the artist does not hear themselves 186 milliseconds delayed as well Yes, when they're playing along with the track. So not anything to do with computer latency at all, just with how do we trick the computer into thinking that they need to hear it ahead of time, but actually record it at the right time and not hear themselves throughput on the tape twice. So one day I will like pack that up into a little software package for Pro Tools owners and try to try to sell the John Ram time machine to, uh, <laughs> to people that don't want to spend 10 grand on a clasp or something and then still not be able to hear your, your actual sound off the tape <laughs> while you're tracking. Like it, one of the sort of drawbacks is that the, the visual and the audio don't sync up from the control room. Like you look yeah. out and the drummer's playing like this and you're hearing, you know, quite delayed. Yeah, you know, like doing. Snares and on kicks and kicks and hard snares. To like, yeah, so it's hard <laughs> for me as, an, as a producer to be like, to you know during a take be like okay one two three like counting into the bridge or something because i'll be way off <laughs> uh compared to what they're hearing so i have a little switch up here that i can just go and now i'm hearing the artist's mix yeah. so that so that i can do little count-ins like that but you know that's the kind of stuff that you wouldn't conventionally have to do um when when not working with tape but yeah, I feel like it's valuable enough to me to go through the slight extra little hurdles of of uh, process to capture um, to capture it. Yeah, you know, the, the head bump for the low end, the little bit of hiss because at fifteen, you know, at sixteen track two inch, there's not a ton of hiss if your machine is set up nicely. Um, but yeah, just those flavors that you can't get otherwise. I mean, you know, there's some pretty good tape saturation emulation plugins and stuff, but you, it, there's nothing quite like it. And it's there from the start this way. You're not like, oh, well, later on, I'll kind of make that sound cool. And, you know, just I feel like as you build the track up, it's better to have things sounding kind of the way they're going to sound so that <laughs> yeah. people can make good decisions instead of just like, okay, I'll play my part and just not focus on how these don't sound right yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very inspirational. And that's another thing too with, you know, when the artists and musicians see the tape spinning, it's slightly more real. Mm. They're like, oh, this is like a thing that's real and not just, not just, turning it into ones and zeros immediately even though you are yes there's a, there's a little bit of a heaviness that comes with like oh hey this is uh there's a motor spinning over there with mechanical things happening here yeah, yeah. and they, they sort of spring step up um and that's another thing about like the studio stuff is is definitely like great microphones are great and they also 
make people step up a little bit to like, wow, this is a RCA 44 BX from 1939. And it looks like Ella Fitzgerald just sang into it. <laughs> I'm actually going to like bring my A game here mm-hmm. instead of it not entering their minds at all what they're, what they're doing. That's another lucky thing about where I am is this place that used to be Mushroom Studios in Vancouver. Um, there's like a ton of history here. Um, some of it relevant to the kind of music I make, others not <laughs> so much. Like, uh, like, well, the Supremes were here. Uh, legend has it that at least the harmonica solo on Bring It On Home, Led Zeppelin, was done here because they were traveling <laughs> around with those tapes. Wow. Um, and then like pretty big records like Heart and... Uh, you know, Sarah McLaughlin and stuff like that were done here. So those aren't particularly pertinent to the music that I'm making, but still just being in a place with some history, kind of like what I was saying about the microphones, makes people sort of be like, well, okay, this is real. This isn't just John's warehouse downtown anymore. (laughs) This is like uh, a real place. And they get a little starry-eyed. And sometimes sometimes you got to rein that in. But I think it's better to have it there for for inspiration than not. Absolutely. I was doing some reading up about the studio, and okay. um, it was designed for Canadian broadcasting in the first instance. Um, you see, yeah, they they did uh, they did a bunch of like smaller orchestral stuff here that they'd offload to this studio. It wasn't actually a CBC studio. Okay. It was uh, another, uh, I should know this, but I can't remember the name of the studio when they actually built it, but they did hire it out a lot to um, Aragon. Aragon, that's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow, you did your homework. Absolutely, yeah. I'm going to get slapped for not knowing that. <laughs> um, one, and it was, I read about the acoustic design being yeah. really specific. and um, yeah. I mean, I just know the sound of the studio through the records that you've made, but how would you describe um, the sound? Okay, yeah. You know, it's, it's a big live room, isn't it? And It's a big live room. I mean, do you want, do you want me to, like, well, I can show you after. Yeah. I won't disrupt the audio stream <laughs> here. But, uh, yeah, it's, like, maybe 18-foot ceilings and 40 feet long and 30 feet wide kind of thing. And it's... Uh, but but the biggest sonic characteristic is that it's just so dense because it's not only is it made from foot thick cinder block filled with sand on the exterior walls and the concrete slab is also floating on sand, mm-hmm. but it's built into the side of a very steep hill here. So oh, it's cool. pretty much underground like like the the entire back half of it is built into the rock so (laughs) it's so dense it's very cave like you know like it's really really a dense room which you just have to work with And, and in a lot of cases that's like you can use it to your advantage in some cases it's like wow how do i make this room more forgiving or 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 like less responsive like there's no in my wood you know timber framed studio that i had before if you hit a bass drum half of it is out into the hallway or out onto the street but here no nothing leaves this room like Mm -hmm. the like it's the side of a mountain so that 30 hertz that used to just go off into nothingness stays in this room yeah and it's a beautiful thing for big drums and loud guitars you know it's great room sounds and like nice open density but it's really tricky if you want to do a little chamber thing where the instruments aren't super evenly matched because spill as you guys call it we call it bleed (laughs) <laughs> it's very uh it 
you know, like the spill is, it's intense. Yeah. Like, it, you know, if you, if you do a jazz drum kit and an upright bass together in that room, it's that, that upright bass mic is essentially a drum room. Mic. <laughs> so because is it just it, baffles? For, do you, how, how do you combat that? Well, there's some ISO. So a lot of times we're splitting stuff up or like, you know, in a more chambery jazz kind of thing like that, we put the drums in the bigger ISO and have everybody else out in the room because, you know, upright bass and piano and uh, trumpet or something is all relatively, you know, like spill is, 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 is the toughest when there's an instrument that's way quieter than everybody else and you yeah. need to have it in the mix. So, or way louder than everybody else, but sort of evenly matched instruments or relatively evenly matched. It's like, it's a very nice sounding spill. So you can use it to your advantage to create a cool space or like just space around the instruments, not sounding closeted. Um, if you pick the right instruments to be out there together. So I had to learn that pretty quickly coming from my old place, which was super dry and dead and tight and just filled with insulation and <laughs> which is a lot like what the Royal studios down in Memphis, where we did Crazy's uh, uh, Indian ocean record. But okay. to that was, I was like, wow, this sounds kind of like my place. Cause it's so dead. And you know, all the rafters is just like burlap with insulation hanging on it everywhere. Like the yeah, place yeah. was just dead, dead, dead. <clears throat> So it's kind of the opposite of that here. And I had to like relearn uh, a few sort of fundamentals of how to work in environments like that. Uh, and now I kind of know how to use it as a, as a weapon and how to mitigate it if it's kind of working against me. So mm. I'm interested to, in the, some of the, the sort of like gear bits. Um, okay. Yeah. I noticed that you have, I mean, so many studios who are working a lot have just racks and racks of nice gear. Yeah. You've got some really nice gear, but it's like it, it, it almost feels specially selected. Um, and I, yeah, I suppose it is. I, yeah. uh, you know, I pretty much put everything that I've ever made from all this back into select pieces of gear. And and uh, I feel like I have a collection that works pretty well for me because I know them so well and I chose them because I needed that flavor to make this and that. And then that's kind of the music that I make. But I also slightly have to cater to outside engineers and producers because I do have the studio working on days where I'm not here just so I can occasionally do my laundry and get stuff done. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's nice to have some toys that I don't necessarily love. Although looking around the room, there's not too many. I can't really think of anything that I bought for someone else, except for maybe this Focusrite Red 3 that I never use. <laughs> um, but even that can be cool sometimes. It's nice to have a stereo comp that's got some real grab. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I feel like the choices that I made were based a lot on researching sounds that I loved and trying to get at them. Um, you know, the, the order of importance in achieving those sounds is, the source first, like you're not going to make, uh, you know, seven string Ibanez played through a PV rage sound like a 57 strat through a sixties deluxe. No. So you got to get the source right. And then you can worry about what mic pre's and mics and down the chain you're using. And I think like, it pretty much works backwards for me. Like the least important thing to me since about the year 2000 is the converters, Like mm -hmm. pretty much converters. I'll use a lot of the same chips now and they 
they go A to D and D to A. And there's not a huge, huge difference for the kind of music that we're making. Yeah. So that's kind of like the last thing that it hits and possibly the least important. I use the Lynx Aurora because I just like them. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure that, you know, there's so many others that are just as good. But I just feel like I've tried a bunch and, you know, clocking makes a difference too. But these differences are small compared with yeah. the other end of the chain where it's that seven string Ibanez or a 67 or 57 strap, right? That's yeah. the biggest difference. This is the smallest difference. Of course. And then I kind of feel like, well, let's, I've never thought about it this way, but let's go down the chain. So we've got our source and then we've got our microphone, which is the next thing. And I feel like that choice is a pretty huge influence on how things are going to sound. Um, then probably next most important would be your choice of mic pre. Um, and again, those two kind of go together. If I'm torn between two mics, I might be like, okay, yes, the ribbon, but only if we use the RCA pre because it's got that tons of gain and a little bit of lift. Otherwise, we'll use the 47 with the knee or whatever. Like these yeah. are sort of interrelated. Um, and then, I guess, processing. I don't really call my pre-choice processing, but like processing is, you know, in certain cases, pretty, pretty huge, I guess. So maybe these are all sort of on equal footing. Um, uh, you know, I'm not a huge like time-based effects guy to tape, but I mm -hmm. am definitely get into my EQs and compression on the way in. I figure like capturing all that uh, on the way to tape is is a big thing for me. How bold are you with your choices in um, EQ and compression? You know, are you are you low, uh, sort of high passing sort of stuff on the way in, or how? I sometimes do a high pass stuff on the way. I've got this nice rack of eight knee thirty three one twenty twos that have the same EQ points as ten eighty ones, so they've mm -hmm. got a nice uh, high pass and low pass filter. And I will do that. I feel like you know the little resonant bump at the top of them sometimes is even helpful for a low end thing. Like if I set the, the uh, high pass on the knee here to 47, you know, you're going to wipe out a lot of the stuff that's just going to be eating up headroom and yeah. inaudible rumble, but you're actually going to give a little bump to around 50, 60 or somewhere right where you might want your big open kick drum. Yeah. <laughs> sound to be maybe not so much with a punchier tighter track but with some of the more open undampened bass drum stuff that can be nice uh and then you know i'm always like just hacking out massive amounts of ugly mids on when i'm tracking drums like <laughs> it's like there's you know there's, there's fixed frequencies on the knees here so it's like usually like there's a 270, 390, and 560. And one of those is usually pinned at like minus 15 dB um, just to get that gunk out of the way so that you can hear the depth and the crispness, but not all the murk that you want to have. You know, like that's where your Wurlitzer is going to be and that's yeah. where your beauty in the vocal is going to be and you'll be able to have more body uh so yeah i do a lot of that to tape otherwise i'm just uninspired when i come up and listen or even if i'm not drumming if i'm at just engineering or producing i want it to to go down like i said kind yeah. of the way that should be going down so yeah i'm pretty pretty aggressive with the eq um Sometimes I'll be maybe too aggressive on top sometimes. 
and then I'll realize that I actually I have my tube on still. And I'll take that <laughs> off, <laughs> and I'll be like, "Oh, hey, whoa, there's all my 12k and up." And so a lot of times you'll see me like, "Wow, up here." <laughs> it's a good look. <laughs> yeah, right. That's my new look. So yeah, I I go for it, and uh, same with compression. A lot of the t- yeah, most of the time I've got just some. And again, you, like with the comps and stuff, you're you're giving that back to the artists in their in their cue mix. So if they're not hearing how that's going to sound because you're going to do it later, it hugely affects the performance. Yeah, yeah. So if you know that's what you want, and you know they're going to react with it and to it, then then I think you should go for it. Um, you know, I sometimes get scared and throw up a second mic on a on a vocal if I'm gonna be like, "Oh man, am I really sure that I want this much grit?" Yeah, uh, I'll sort of put up a backup and keep it on the side for just emergencies or whatever. But um, yeah, for the most part, I've, for the most part, I've never gone back and said oh man i really pushed this too hard mm-hmm. like just the rare time when somebody like belts a note that kind of burnt up and the rest of the song isn't like that or something you're like oh okay how, how am i gonna fix that but for the most part it's like not wishing that i didn't go so far yeah 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 What's um? I mean, just in terms of your, have you got any particular things that are in in favor at the moment? Uh, outboard, I'm just talking about. Before we, I've got some microphone placement questions and stuff, but yeah, you know, any uh, uh, yeah, anything you I particularly like, fond of? Yeah, I guess like in the last year or so, I have finally acquired a couple of U4s. Oh yes, and it's. It's a game changer, you know? <laughs> it really is. Like, I know I say that every time, like, you know, I'll get like, uh, yeah, I'll get any piece of gear and be like, wow, this is a real game changer. But in the case of the 47s, I do feel like for many reasons, it's it's a game changer. Like, again, the artist has a wow factor and just the depth and beauty of the performance I feel is captured so well the like kind of like the, the actual sort of built-in compression from that tube is unbelievable and I don't think you can recreate it with anything else and and just the sort of overall EQ shape of that microphone fits the human voice so well I find yeah. It's like it, it definitely uh um you know I don't want to say hypes because that's the wrong word, but it uh you know it enhances it's like it's doing something. Yeah, yeah. And there's the occasional voice where you're like, we don't need to do something to this voice, we just need to get it down great. Yeah. And yeah. for that I'll reach more for the sony c37a or u67 yeah um with a little bit of shelf at the top maybe on the 67 but for most guys and a lot of girls 47 is just kind of great so yeah that's been a big one um i mean i just love these neve 1290s that I have. It's the preamp section of 1073s. Mm-hmm. Um, the Scully was a revolution for me. The Just the way that thing breaks up is so unlike anything else and I couldn't really figure out why for the first while and it's it's not actually in the tape electronics of it. It's just in the amplification section of it. It's all germanium transistors. So okay. it like, literally distorts differently than silicone so um even not rolling tape just going through those things imparts uh 
a distortion characteristic that reminds you of those records that use them heavily, like the stacks stuff. Like when you hear the kind of distortion on those records, I think it's the Germanian transistors in the scully cool. more than hitting the tape too hard or overloading the mic or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, so and just figuring out when to use those and how to use those to your creative advantage, I guess, is the is the game and not to overdo them so they're not special. Yeah. Um I had a friend build me well friend, he's my main engineer here, second in command, Eric Nielsen. He's also a great tech and he built me a couple of uh Rev D eleven seventy six clones. Oh that we sourced the actual input and output transformers for from original URI units. So oh, cool. they pretty much are black base 1176s. Like wow. the design's the same, the circuit's the same. Sure, the resistors and capacitors are of a different era, but the input transformers are such a big part of that too. So I feel like, yeah, those are <clears throat> probably as close as I need to get to a uh, black place 1176 unless someone just drops 10 grand in my lap for no reason <laughs> but i think there's other places that would go before yeah because it's just doing that thing for me so i mean i'm not really a clones kind of guy but those ones i for some reason i feel like uh i'm pretty happy with they sound like they're uh, kind of special anyway. You know, they've got to be a little bit of a story behind them. So, it, yeah, you know, they might be a clone, too. but they're yeah. personal to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. And then the other one that was big for me was the V76 um, Mike Pre, which is just kind of a beautiful, beautiful thing. Like, for the longest time, you know how you go in the studio and you're kind of trying to get your bearings and you got a lot of elements kind of coming in at you at once. There's a band setting up and you've got, you kind of get some guitar sounds and drum sounds and bass and vocals or whatever. And you're like, okay, hey, where am I? Like what, you know, is this bright or not bright? Or is it <laughs> enough bottom end here? I know it's my own studio and I should know these things and I could put on reference tracks and whatever. But for the longest time, my, <coughs> excuse me, my reference has kind of been a P bass through V76 into the stay level compressor. <laughs> and okay. it just always sounds great. It always sounds full. It always sounds strong. So once I, and you know, take two seconds to pull it up. So yeah. I bring that, I'm like, okay, that's where I'm sort of, that's what I can build my reference on for how yeah. much depth this kick drum needs and stuff like that and then kind of since the 47s came along those have become a secondary reference where it's like okay i'm sure i'm dialing acoustic guitar right now but i need to hear the singer sing again and i don't need to hear him sing into a 58 just because it's scratch and he's in the iso booth i'll set up the 47 for the scratch because I need to know how to treat these other sounds based on what he's actually going to be doing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I used to be like, ah, singer, who cares? <laughs> put him in the put him in the booth with a 58 <laughs> while we get the important stuff down. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and now it's like, okay, wait a minute here. Let's uh let's make sure we have a really good reference for what's going to be there too mm -hmm. and that's why i don't really like working with the say an artist has done some scratch tracks at home to a click and it's like well it's good enough we could play to that while we figure out the song but you know the sonics aren't right so it's you're you're making bad decisions along the way because you're just so you know unconsciously playing touching dialing everything to 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 match something that's not going to be like that at all like Absolutely. it's a di acoustic and a 58 or whatever yeah. so it's like just doesn't work so if at all possible 
I'll get them to just come in quickly and recut it or sit in the booth and play along mm-hmm. if it's not going to be too taxing on them. But yeah, those are kind of, you know, maybe things that they tell you in day one of recording school, but I've come upon them honestly by figuring out over time <laughs> that, okay, this is important. You got to make sure that everything that's coming into your ears is a reference point so you got to make sure they're close to what they want to be yeah i love it i mean i i I want to speak uh in fact before i ask you about this i want just talk about your studio console it's not something you see enormously often but it's such a beautiful thing (laughs) and i bet it yeah it it sounds incredible i'm glad you you think so yeah it's uh so it's it's an it's a 189, turns out, not an 089, which is like from about 71. Okay. And again, it's all discrete. There's not one chip in the whole thing. Um, even the op amps are uh, like discrete. They're just on these cards of mm. caps and resistors. So it's all right there. Everything is serviceable. All the modules come out. Um, I got it from a guy down in Portland um who i don't know if he's the one that brought it into the states but it was originally at a radio station in basel oh interesting yeah like it's you know they're a swiss company so it's not surprising that it was just across the border there but it uh the one of the distinguishing features is that in the armrest on the front of the console, there's there's ashtrays built in. <laughs> so that's kind of cute and everything until you pull out all the modules and see all the black smoky tar on the gold contacts. Wow. So step one was a lot of cleaning to get rid of some sort of intermittent contact issues. But I guess one fortunate thing is that the gold plating on all the contacts on these swiss desks was very thick and deep so as you're using a little bit of you know eraser or contact cleaner to get rid of the smoke and filth you're also removing a little bit of gold plating mm-hmm. usually and but it was pretty rich in gold so i didn't do much damage <laughs> cleaning this thing and then it's kind of also cool. I don't know how gear talk we want to get, but like, oh, all the way, do it. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. So, like, you know, sort of refurbishing or or rehabilitating this console, I, you know, to would still sort of find a ah, huh, channel still still funny. What's going on? And I've replaced this, and I've done that, and I've cleaned this. Um, and the kind of the Achilles heel of these is the relays so at the top of each module there's a selector switch that selects your input whether Mm -hmm. it's line input microphone input or the tone generator and those switches aren't well they are just contacts like gold contacts Mm -hmm. on a switch but they activate a relay and the signal, the audio signal actually passes through the relay. So after much cleaning of contacts and switches and connections, it turns out that, uh, and they're sealed too, those relays, so you can't really get in there and do much except yeah. wreck them, <laughs> <laughs> which I found out. But fortunately, there's uh, some guy in Italy who is building drop-in replacements and they're not cheap, but, and there's like uh, three per module times 16. So it does add up, but yeah. so worth it. Cause uh, you know, I was like sourcing old op amps. It's the same op amps from the Studer tape machines, the A80s. Mm-hmm. So I was like finding old decrepit A80s and like, blindly buying the op amps off the guys on ebay <laughs> and they're like are you sure you want these things like, yeah and i'd put them in the console and it's still it's still intermittent it's like oh man so i mean this was sort of the first major 
piece of serious equipment that I got and I it sort of launched my tech journey as well like diving into that studer manual was a revolution for me mm. like it's a heavily documented piece of equipment right they're very yeah. meticulous with the manual so it's really great for learning about reading dot reading schematics and understanding block diagrams and all that kind of stuff so um i feel like the mistakes i made along the way were none were catastrophic and the learning was huge and i eventually got to the place that i needed to get so it was a it was a good a good journey um all the while it's sounding great just you know a few channels like why why can't you all work? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I kind of, for the first while, I treated it as like a split console. So I, I separated off the input modules and just used them as my pre-EQs and then just had a bank of faders for basically either sending stuff to tape or levels and they're all available to me on a patch bay rather than direct connection from input module to the fader below it mm -hmm. but now i have the option of both and it is nice to have uh you know when you get into some more creative stuff like pinning one of the needs and high or low passing it all and sending it to tape and you're after the breakup of the need pre but you don't want tape saturation it's nice to have a fader in the way to be able to pull something back so you're not also clipping tape you're just clipping yeah like a lot of what we do is various types of saturation explorations whether we know it or not really i think the way things distort even subtly is a huge part of why we pick a piece of gear for this or pick a piece of gear for that um back to the studer though yeah it's very the eqs are very like uh the shelving is really nice and gentle and the the one selectable mid uh cut and boost is also very wide q so it's not great for like sucking out the you know 150 hertz that you don't want in a kick drum or something but it's yes definitely good for sort of broad boosts and cuts of musical regions that you want to accentuate uh and there's other tools for those more surgical cuts for sure mm -hmm. um it sees a fair bit of action but i do not mix on it uh i have some through it yeah. a bunch which is cool but I kind of feel like we're at this point where large format consoles aren't really, and this is not a large format console, really. It's 16 by 8. So, yeah. um, you know, sometimes I fantasize, oh, you know, if I sold everything I own and bought a 80 series Neve, okay, so then what? I have maybe, maybe... 40 channels like what's the last record that i made that had less than 40 tracks on it you mm -hmm. know it's kind of get to that point where you're going to be in the box anyways yeah so unless you have an ssl that's you know 64 inputs or more <laughs> i don't know how much outboard mixing is happening and i think you're seeing it in the market too i think you're seeing you know, people offloading their, you know, large format consoles and attaching big names to them and stuff too to make sure the price is right. Yeah. But I don't really see, you know, if I had a 24 input 80 series Neve, I'd pretty much be using it as mic pre's and EQs. Yeah. <laughs> which I already have racks of that kind of same stuff so it would be awesome and it would look really cool and i might be convinced to like try making records that way or something but that's very niche and you know 
to to survive in this world right now you know maybe niche is is great but i feel like i'm niche enough and i need to be able to accommodate 100 recall and other engineers that are just work used to working in pro tools and then you know don't have this giant power sucking <laughs> 80 series need that needs t- constant upkeep and everything yeah no i hear you i think you're absolutely right and um yeah i you just can't argue with that i think it works it works absolutely yeah. fine yeah the the, the final question I, I kind of want to ask you myself is is about um drum miking and where you're okay. um just sort of where your head's at with it i mean i've got my favorite my favorite yeah. sort of things i like and um i i have options i, I yeah. give to people so i you know i spend most of my time doing remote stuff and right. it means that i've got a lot of mics there so that there's plenty yeah. of options depending on what other people want want right i know I what see. i want um yeah and uh, what is it what's your go-to's you know what what do you like to hear as, as a drummer miking up other drummers yeah, or, or yourself yeah i mean i feel like uh i feel like it's it's almost like uh it's sort of dependent on not just the material and the drums or whatever but kind of like the day and the (laughs) what's what's gonna kind of inspire me and sometimes that's maybe not a great thing but i do you know i'm you know what i'm just going with the re20 today you know i just want to see that on the kick drum or whatever. <laughs> and then maybe I change it out later, but I feel like I get a little idea in my head about how I think this record is going to go down. And I don't, yeah, it'd be cool to like take a slow motion snapshot of what synapses fire when you make those instant decisions that are going to shape the whole entire record. But pretty <laughs> much like happens in a flash of like, you know, okay, I'm going to detune bass drum, piece of paper on the snare, like towels on the toms, dynamic mics up tight, whatever. It all just kind of happens like that. If you break it down, maybe there's reasons or not, but um, you also just kind of have to be inspired or your day is going to be blase so <laughs> yeah if you're just like hey you know what i got this cool thing i want to try to work it in but i'm gonna put it on a separate channel in case it sucks <laughs> then at least that's what's kind of like a little secondary motivator for you on the techie side of things yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. there's nothing that a techie likes less than just doing it the same every day mm-hmm. so it's like yeah well, i'm gonna try this and try that and oftentimes in the end, I'll look at a mix and be like, okay, yeah, that channel's muted and that channel's <laughs> muted and that channel's muted. And what am I left with? I'm left with uh, outside kick, snare top, mono overhead, stereo room. And hey, hey, man. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, uh, you know, sometimes, like, I, I, I have the luxury of putting up a few too many things so that we have the choices later and sometimes they come in handy. Um, and then it's just what do you put in those positions and how do you treat them is sort of way more dependent on on the style and the sound and, and what's going to work for the project. But one of the things that lives with that, that like gets a, a lot of use for mono overhead here is that Neumann CMV 653. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, people sort of say it's like the E47's baby brother. It's actually mm. its grandfather because it's pre-47. Yeah. Well, that's not necessarily true the capsules that are on them. It's like those ones, lollipop ones, right? Yeah. And so I have the M7 capsule in that, which is what 
is in a U-47, but the entire amplifier body part is totally different, different tube, different design, different everything. But it is soft enough, I guess that's probably the M7, that it can be pinned pretty hard, hit and tape with a bit of crunch, and not get away from you on the transients and the brightness and the harshness. And it just kind of becomes this, like, as you bring it up, there just becomes more density in the in the drum track it's like oh there it's all kind of there now instead of these isolated kicks and snares and sure their fundamentals are strong but there's no there's no like forwardness to them so i guess like you know i'm not too i don't have any too wild things that i do with uh with the close miking i uh I have a D12 and a D20 that I like outside the kick. I have a FET 47 that I like outside the kick. And I have an RE20 that I like outside the kick. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that I do, I'll like literally remove the resonant head, throw in a couple of pillows, jam the RE20 up close. RE20s are wild because they really don't have proximity effect. Mm-hmm. Like the design of the microphone is such that you, there's way less of that overwhelming woofiness as you get it close. So I yeah. feel like you can get close to get a lot of detail without too much overwhelming low end that's going to you know make tape react funny or compressor react funny. Um, so those are my sort of kick options. Although on the crazy record, the newest one, most of what we're hearing is uh, RCA forty four BX ribbon. Okay, out yeah, front yeah. Of the kick, like two feet out. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, that's I mean, obviously that's testament to you as a player balancing yourself and and um, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's surprisingly still very kick. When you solo that mic up, it's like, wow, that sounds like it's like right there as a kick Mm. mic. And, you know, ribbons are kind of cool that way in that the nulls reject a lot of the outside world. I actually think we ended up putting a little soft baffle on the backside because, you know, a figure eight ribbon in a room like this is going to be picking up a lot of what's over in the opposite direction of the bass drum. Mm -hmm. So a little baffle on that side to make it more like a cardioid microphone facing the kick drum um but yeah a lot less spill from the sides because of the no um and then snare drums i only when i'm playing drums will i use that cmv as a snare mic occasionally Mm -hmm. too because it's again it's like got a delicacy but fullness that's right there for you but you know in most situations um i use sm56 oh okay like a 57 but with a hinge on it (laughs) (laughs) i swear there's no difference except for the hinge and the fact that they're all old so they have the original input transformer or output transformer and uh and you know the original manufacturer like they're all made in the usa and stuff so i like those for snare occasionally i'll deviate and use uh 441 Mm -hmm. because they're hypercard and it's like right in there and there's a lot of thickness and stuff that's if i'm you know going for like a real tight almost kind of i don't know I think when I pull those out, I think of like Fleetwood Mac rumors mm, yeah, kind of yeah. drum vibe. So I'll go there. And then, like I said, the mono overhead, but I always do have a stereo pair up, usually in XY or ORTF. I don't really do spaced overheads okay. much. Um, and those are usually the brass capsule 414s, like the 414 EBs. 
that I have just because they're kind of scooped out already and provide mm-hmm. a lot of detail. Um, and, you know, it is nice to have some stereo imaging on a, on a drum. And I feel like XY and RTF always avoid phase issues with themselves, at least, you know, you still have to get it right with the kick and snare. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that was maybe the hugest thing with drum miking. And the, it's like bigger than any EQ you could ever imagine is phase relationship between kick, snare, and overheads. It's mm-hmm. like just massive, like maybe up there with the source as far <laughs> yeah. as importance, you know, like, You'd have the greatest mics up and a great source. And and I'm not talking just 180 degrees flipped. Yeah. But but subtle variations of phase rotation to get the body back into a snare. Because, you know, I do lean on overheads heavily for a drum picture. Mm-hmm. And I need body from that close mic. And as you bring that close mic in up, if you're not getting body you're just making things worse because it's a dynamic it sounds kind of garbagey up top anyways so out comes the phase rotation and oftentimes i'll just find a decent hit create a loop and just listen to that same snare hit with the overheads and snare mic and kick mic open and rotate the phase on that one hit. So I know it's mm. not because, I, oh, I hit that next one better and it just sounded fuller. <laughs> it's like that one hit is getting better, 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 worse, worse. Okay, back it off. Better, better. Okay. Interesting. There it is. Full body. And then just kind of leave it until you go down and move a mic and then you screw it all <laughs> up and you have to do yeah. it all again. So, I mean, some of that is like, tough decision making too like the things you can't undo like Mm. moving the height of your overheads or something it's like it's like okay i kind of want to move these but man if this makes it worse i can't get back to exactly this you know like it's (laughs) it's like it's millimeters yeah so so yeah uh yeah as far as drum miking goes i think um i don't do anything too crazy except sometimes with hit and take um in a certain way but i do feel like the source is hugely important and the phase relationships between kick snare and overheads is like massive and should be experimented with yes and and you know sometimes you get it close and then you do a bit of that in software, but radial makes a really cool um, analog phase rotation box mm-hmm. that uh, I don't know what kind of voodoo is in there, but <laughs> but you can do the same thing that you can do with the you know Vox and Go plugs or the I forget the maybe it's a little labs plug that's got the good phase rotation tool, but mm-hmm. yeah, you can do it on the way in too. Fantastic. I didn't know about that. I need to go and check that out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good box. Uh, I forget what it's called, uh, but Radio makes it. Cool. Yeah. Um, oh, man. It's been so good chatting to you. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Sorry if I just kind of spouted on and on, but. Not uh, at all. I love it. And uh, I. Okay. There we go. I do hope that you enjoyed that conversation um, and took a lot of notes. I think it's going to be an expensive year for me. (laughs) I have uh, a lot of notes from my conversation with John. And um, yeah, I just found it really, really inspiring. And I kind of hope that you did too. Um, So yes, um, I'd just like to remind you, if you want to get in touch with me with some guest suggestions, uh, you are more than welcome. Um, In fact, I would urge you to do that. Um, I have a, you know, I always say I have a list of people that I'd like to speak to um, and some people are very difficult to get hold of and I have interviews lined up, uh, but I also like to hear the suggestions from you because I want it to be a sort of collaborative process um, and there might be people that 
I'm not aware of. Uh, you know, especially if you're in some a, a corner of the world that's not the UK, essentially. Um, that would be really useful. So, you know, obviously I've spoken to a lot of people in Australia, a few people in Canada, lots of people in America, but America is a big place. So if you have any guest suggestions at all, please do get in touch. My email is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com uh, and I will do my best to get hold of whoever those, whoever you suggest, essentially. Um, you can also support this podcast by buying a lovely enamel mug uh, from my website, where I also have uh, CDs and things for sale. That's allyouneedisdrums.com. You can also check out a load of the free stuff that I've got on there. There's tons of drums that you can download and do what you would like with. Uh, that just leaves me to say a big thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, to Adam Mallett for the artwork, and to Rory Hancock for doing all of the necessary things to make the podcast get to your ears so thanks to all of those guys and i will speak to you next tuesday goodbye